Section 2 of The Natural History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 1, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 2. The Life and Writings of Pliny, Part 2. Of the mode of life pursued by Pliny, and of the rest of his works, an equally interesting account has been preserved by his nephew, in an epistle addressed to Macer. We cannot more appropriately conclude than by presenting this epistle to the reader. I am highly gratified to find that you read the works of my uncle with such a degree of attention as to feel a desire to possess them all, and that with this view you inquire, what are their names? I will perform the duties of an index, then, and not content with that, will state in what order they were written, for even that is a kind of information which is by no means undesirable to those who are devoted to literary pursuits. His first composition was a treatise, on the use of the javelin by cavalry, in one book. This he composed, with equal diligence and ingenuity, when he was in command of a troop of horse. His second work was The Life of Quintus Pomponius Secundus, in two books, a person by whom he had been particularly beloved. These books he composed as a tribute, which was justly due to the memory of his deceased friend. His next work was Twenty Books on the Wars in Germany, in which he has compiled an account of all the wars in which we have been engaged with the people of that country. This he had begun while serving in Germany having been recommended to do so in a dream. For in his sleep he thought that the figure of Drusus Nero stood before him, the same Drusus, who, after the most extensive conquest in that country, there met his death. Commending his memory to Pliny's attentive care, Drusus conjured him to rescue it from the decaying effect of oblivion. Next to these came his three books, entitled The Student, divided, on account of their great size, into six volumes. In these he has given instructions for the training of the orator, from the cradle to his entrance on public life. In the latter years of Nero's reign, he wrote eight books on difficulties in the Latin language, that being a period at which every kind of study, in any way free-spoken or of even elevated style, would have been rendered dangerous by the tyranny that was exercised. His next work, was his continuation of the history of Aufidius Bassus in thirty-one books, after which came his natural history in thirty-seven books, a work remarkable for its comprehensiveness and erudition, and not less varied than nature herself. You will wonder how a man so occupied with business could possibly find time to write such a number of volumes, many of them on subjects of a nature so difficult to be treated of. You will be even more astonished when you learn that, for some time he pleaded at the bar as an advocate, that he was only in his fifty-sixth year at the time of his death, and that the time that intervened was equally trenched upon and frittered away by the most weighty duties of business, and the marks of favor shown him by princes. His genius, however, was truly quite incredible, his zeal indefatigable, and his power of application wonderful in the extreme. At the festival of the Vulcanalia, he began to set up at a late hour by candlelight, not for the purpose of consulting the stars, but with the object of pursuing his studies, while in the winter 
he would set to work at the seventh hour of the night, or the eighth at the very latest, often indeed at the sixth. By nature he had the faculty of being able to fall asleep in a moment. Indeed, slumber would sometimes overtake him in his studies, and then leave him just as suddenly. Before daybreak he was in the habit of attending the Emperor Vespasian, for he too was one who made an excellent use of his nights, and then betook himself to the duties with which he was charged. On his return home he devoted all the time which was remaining to study. Taking an early repast, after the old fashion, light and easy of digestion, in the summer time, if he had any leisure to spare, he would lie down in the sunshine while some book was read to him, he himself making notes and extracts in the meanwhile. For it was his habit never to read anything without making extracts, it being the maxim of him that, that there is no book so bad, but that some good may be got out of it. After thus enjoying the sunshine, he generally took a cold bath, after which he would sit down to a slight repast, and then take a short nap. On awaking, as though another day had now commenced, he would study till the hour of the evening meal, during which some book was generally read to him, he making comments on it in a cursory manner. I remember, on one occasion, a friend of his interrupting the reader, who had given the wrong pronunciation to some words, and making him go over them again. "'You understood him, didn't you?' said my uncle. "'Yes,' said the other. "'Why, then, did you make him go over it again?' Through this interruption of yours we have lost more than ten lines. So thrifty a manager was he of time. In summer he rose from the evening meal by daylight, and in winter, during the first hour of the night, just as though there had been some law which made it compulsory on him to do so. This is how he lived in the midst of his employments, and the bustle of the city. When, in retirement in the country, the time spent in the bath was the only portion that was not allotted by him to study. When I say in the bath, I mean while he was in the water, for while his body was being scraped with a striggle and rubbed, he either had some book read to him, or else would dictate himself. While upon a journey, as though relieved from every other care, he devoted himself to study, and nothing else. By his side was his secretary, with a book and tablets, and in the winter time the secretary's hands were protected by gloves that the severity of the weather might not deprive his master for a single moment of his services. It was for this reason also that, when at Rome, he would never move about except in a litter. I remember that on one occasion he found fault with me for walking. You might have avoided losing all those hours, said he, for he looked upon every moment as lost that was not devoted to study. It was by means of such unremitting industry as this that he completed so many works, and left me one hundred and sixty volumes of notes, written extremely small on both sides, which, in fact, renders the collection doubly voluminous. He himself used to relate that when he was the procurator in Spain, he might have parted with his commonplace book to Ligarius Licinius for four hundred thousand sesterces, and at that time the collection was not so extensive as afterwards. When you come to think of how much he must have read, of how much he has written, would you not really suppose that he had never been engaged in business, and had never enjoyed the favor of princes? And yet, on the other hand, when you hear what labor he expended upon his studies, does it not almost seem that he has neither written nor read enough? For, in fact, what pursuits are those, 
that would not have been interrupted by occupations such as his. While again, what is there that such unremitting perseverance as his could not have effected? I am in the habit, therefore, of laughing at it when people call me a studious man, me who, in comparison with him, am a downright idler. And yet I devote to study as much time as my public engagements on the one hand, and my duty to my friends on the other will admit of. Who is there, then, out of all those who have devoted their whole life to literature, that ought not, when put in comparison with him, to quite blush at a life that would almost appear to have been devoted to slothfulness and inactivity? But my letter has already exceeded its proper limits, for I had originally intended to write only on the subject as to which you had made inquiry, the books of his composition that he left. I trust, however, that these particulars will prove no less pleasing to you than the writings themselves, and that they will not only induce you to peruse them, but excite you, by a feeling of generous emulation, to produce some work of a similar nature. Farewell. Of all the works written by Pliny, only one, the Historia Naturalis, has survived to our times. This work, however, is not a natural history in the modern acceptation of the word, but rather a vast encyclopedia of ancient knowledge and belief upon almost every known subject, not less varied than nature herself, as his nephew says. It comprises, within the compass of thirty-seven books, twenty thousand matters of importance, collected from about two thousand volumes, nearly all of which have now perished. The works, as Pliny himself states, of one hundred writers of authority, together with a vast number of additional matters unknown to those authorities, and many of them the results of his own experience and observation. Harduin has drawn up a catalogue of the authors, quoted by Pliny. They amount in the number to between four hundred and five hundred. The following is a brief sketch of the plan of this wonderful monument of human industry. After a dedicatory epistle to Titus, followed by a table of contents of the other books, which together form the first book, the author proceeds to give an account of the prevailing notions as to the universe, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the more remarkable properties of the elements, partes naturae. He then passes on to a geographical description of the face of the earth as known to the ancients. After the geography comes what might, in strict propriety, be termed natural history, including a history of man, replete indeed with marvels, but interesting in the highest degree. Having mentioned at considerable length the land animals, fishes, birds, and insects, he passes on to botany, which in its various aspects occupies the larger portion of the work. At the same time, in accordance with this comprehensive plan, this part includes a vast amount of information on numerous subjects, the culture of the cereals, and the manufacture of oil, wine, and paper, and numerous other articles of daily use. After treating at considerable length of medical botany, he proceeds to speak of medicaments derived from the human body, from which he branches off into discussions on the history of medicine and magic, which last he looks upon as an offshoot from the medical art, and he takes this opportunity of touching upon many of the then current superstitions and notions on astrology. He concludes this portion of his work with an account of the medicinal properties of the various waters, and those of fishes and other aquatic animals. He then presents us with a treatise on mineralogy, 
in which he has accumulated every possible kind of information relative to the use of gold, silver, bronze, and other metals, a subject which not unnaturally leads him into repeated digressions relative to money, jewels, plate, statues, and statuaries. Mineral pigment next occupies his attention, with many interesting notices on the great painters of Greece, from which he passes on to the various kinds of stone, and materials employed in building, and the use of marble for the purposes of sculpture, including a notice of that art, and the most eminent sculptors. The last book is devoted to an account of gems and precious stones, and concludes with a eulogium on his native country, as alike distinguished for its fertility, its picturesque beauties, and the natural endowments and high destinies of its people. From the writings of Pliny we gather, of course, a large amount of information as to his opinions and the constitution of his mind. His credulity, it must be admitted, is great in the extreme, though singularly enough he severely taxes the Greeks with the same failing. Were we not assured from other sources that he was eminently successful in life, was in the enjoyment of opulence, and honored with the favor and confidence of princes, the remarks which he frequently makes on human life, in the seventh book more especially, would have led us to the conclusion that he was a disappointed man, embittered against his fellow creatures, and dissatisfied with the terms on which the tenor of life is granted to us. He opens that book with a preface replete with querulous dissatisfaction and repinings at the lot of man, the only tearful animal, he says. He repines at the helpless and wretched condition of the infant at the moment it is ushered into life, and the numerous pains and vices to which it is doomed to be subject. Man's liability to disease is with him a blemish in the economy of nature. Life, he says, this gift of nature, however long it may be, is but too uncertain and too frail to those even to whom it is most largely granted. It is dealt out with a sparing and niggardly hand, if we only think of eternity. As we cannot have life on our own terms, he does not think it worthy of our acceptance, and more than once expresses his opinion that the sooner we are rid of it, the better. Sudden death he looks upon as a remarkable phenomenon, but at the same time as the greatest blessing that can be granted to us. And when he mentions cases of resuscitation, it is only to indulge in the querulous complaint that, exposed as he is by his birth to the caprices of fortune, man can be certain of nothing, no, not even of his own death. Though anything but an Epicurean, in the modern acceptation of the word, he seems to have held some, at least, of the tenets of Epicurus, in reference to the immortality of the soul. Whether he supposed that the soul, at the moment of death, is resolved into its previous atoms, or constituent elements, he does not inform us. But he states it as his belief that after death, the soul has no more existence than it had before birth, that all notions of immortality are a mere delusion, and that the very idea of a future existence is ridiculous, and spoils the greatest blessings of nature, death. He certainly speaks of ghosts or apparitions seen after death, but these he probably looked upon as exceptional cases if indeed he believed in the stories which he quotes, of which we have no proofs, or rather indeed presumptive proofs to the contrary, for some of them he calls Magua Fabulotas, most fabulous tales. In relation to human inventions, it is worthy of remark that he states that the first thing 
in which mankind agreed was the use of the Ionian alphabet, the second the practice of shaving the beard and the employment of barbers, and the third the division of time into hours. We cannot more appropriately conclude this review of the life and works of Pliny than by quoting the opinions of two of the most eminent philosophers of modern times, Buffon and Cuvier, though the former, it must be admitted, has spoken of him in somewhat too high terms of commendation, and, instituting a comparison between Pliny's works and those of Aristotle, has placed in juxtaposition the names of two men who, beyond an ardent thirst for knowledge, had no characteristics in common. Pliny, says Buffon, has worked upon a plan which is much more extensive than that of Aristotle, and not improbably too extensive. He has made it his object to embrace every subject. Indeed, he would appear to have taken the measure of nature, and to have found her too contracted for his expansive genius. His natural history, independently of that of animals, plants, and minerals, includes an account of the heavens and the earth, of medicine, commerce, navigation, the liberal and mechanical arts, the origin of usages and customs, in a word, the history of all the natural sciences and all the arts of human invention. What, too, is still more astonishing, in each of these departments Pliny shows himself equally great. The grandeur of his ideas and the dignity of his style confer an additional luster on the profoundness of his erudition. Not only did he know all that was known in his time, but he was also gifted with that comprehensiveness of view which in some measure multiplies knowledge. He had all that delicacy of perception, upon which depends so materially upon elegance and taste, and he communicates to his readers that freedom of thought and that boldness of sentiment which constitutes the true germ of philosophy. His work, as varied as nature herself, always paints her in the most attractive colors. It is, so to say, a compilation from all that had been written before his time, a record of all that was good or useful. But this record has in it features so grand, this compilation contains matter grouped in a manner so novel, that it is preferable to most of the original works that treat upon similar subjects. The judgment pronounced by Cuvier on Pliny's work, though somewhat less highly colored, awards to it a high rank among the most valuable productions of antiquity. The work of Pliny, says he, is one of the most precious monuments that have come down to us from ancient times, and affords proof of an astonishing amount of erudition in one who is a warrior and a statesman. To appreciate with justice this vast and celebrated composition, it is necessary to regard it in several points of view, with reference to the plan proposed, the facts stated, and the style employed. The plan proposed by the writer is of immense extent. It is his object to write not merely a natural history in our restricted sense of the term, not merely an account, more or less detailed, of animals, plants, and minerals, but a work which embraces astronomy, physics, geography, agriculture, commerce, medicine, and the fine arts, and all these in addition to natural history, properly so called, while at the same time he continually interweaves with his narrative information upon the arts which bear relation to man, considered metaphysically, and the history of nations, so much so indeed that in many respects this work was the encyclopedia of its age. It is impossible in running over, however cursorily, 
such a prodigious number of subjects that the writer should not have made us acquainted with a multitude of facts, which, while remarkable in themselves, are the more precious from the circumstance that, at the present day, he is the only author extant who relates them. It has to be regretted, however, that the manner in which he has collected and grouped this mass of matter has caused it to lose some portion of its value, from his mixture of fable with truth, and more especially from the difficulty, and in some cases the impossibility, of discovering exactly of what object he is speaking. But if Pliny possesses little merit as a critic, it is far otherwise with his talent as a writer, and the immense treasury which he opens to us of Latin terms and forms of expression, these from the very abundance of the subjects upon which he treats, renders his work one of the richest repositories of the Roman language. Wherever he finds it possible to give expression to general ideas or to philosophical views, his language assumes considerable energy and vivacity, and his thoughts present to us a certain novelty and boldness, which tend, in a very great degree, to relieve the dryness of his enumerations, and with the majority of his readers, excuse the insufficiency of his scientific eudications. He is always noble and serious, full of the love of justice and virtue, detestation of cruelty and baseness, of which he had such frightful instances before his eyes, in contempt for that unbridled luxury which in his time had so deeply corrupted the Roman people. For these great merits Pliny cannot be too highly praised, and despite the faults which we are obliged to admit in him when viewed as a naturalist, we are bound to regard him as the most meritorious of the Roman writers, and among these most worthy to be reckoned in the number of the classics who wrote after the reign of Augustus. End of section 2